Great, thank you, uh, Denny. And uh, let me just start by thanking all of you. I, I realize um, you know three lectures within like a 20-hour period is a lot to ask of an audience. And so um, I've been really gratified by you know what um, great of a turnout we've had for all three of these lectures. And particularly you know this this morning, you're all coming back for the third at 10 a.m. Uh, uh, on a Wednesday. So uh, thank you guys for being here. And also, um, thank you for the great questions. I thought, um, you know, since we won't have time at the end of this, uh, you know, I'll be like heading off to the airport. I, I don't want to forget to um, thank you. The quality of the uh, public questions that you asked at the microphones during the first two lectures, and then also the conversations that we've had during the receptions. Um, it's been really impressive. Uh, and so, you know, kudos to you as students, but also to your faculty. Um, you guys are doing something right here um, and keep doing it. Uh, I've been you know, very impressed by uh, the quality of the students, quality of the discussions. Um, and it's really been an, an enjoyable and encouraging visit. Right? It gives me hope to see um, what you're doing at Southern and um, the students who will be leading uh, the SBC, uh, pastoring the churches, being the next generation of theologians. As a Catholic, it gives me hope to know that we're going to have uh, strong uh, Baptists, uh, co-belligerency, you know, ecumenism of the trenches, possibly ecumenism of the uh, re-education camps. Uh, <laughs> we'll see where it goes. Um, but uh, yes, all right, so um, I, I won't go further down that road right now. During the Q&A, we can talk more about that. Um, all right, so what I want to do for this third lecture, if you've been to all three, you know the first one focused on um, natural law theory, how to think about what the natural law is, why it matters, how it compares to other uh, moral traditions, uh, uh, traditions of ethical Reflections, uh, the second lecture focused on church-state relations and the relation of morality to law. Uh, in this last lecture, what I want to do is think about four creational truths um, that really matter. Four truths um, that, to my mind, are some of the most important truths that matter for human flourishing, for human dignity. These are truths about human nature um, that make a difference uh, when it comes to public policy, to law. Uh, and there are four areas where, unfortunately, our political community uh, is going uh, in a bad direction. Uh, although at least one of them seems to you know, at least hold out hope um, that we'll be making some progress in the near future. Um, but in general, we, we've, we've, we've suffered setbacks uh, on these four issues. Um, and what I want to do by the end of the lecture is encourage you to do what you can given your own vocations um, to lend your hand to the plow uh, and make a difference on these issues. Uh, that these are issues that we shouldn't be running away from. These are issues that we should be uh, investing our lives, our vocations, our careers um, uh, in defending and promoting the truth on. Uh, as Denny mentioned, in uh, June, I'll be publishing um, my fifth book uh, titled Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything, Solves Nothing. You know, next time I'm here, it might be one of the books that you know, they give to you for free when you're walking in the door. Uh, it's not available uh, yet, which is why you, know, you don't have a copy of it right now. But remarkably, it's probably the least controversial of the books that I've written. Um, and, you know, and, and that's the title, and, that, and, and, and the title is meant to be very descript. Uh, you know, just like the title of the book that you got today, What is Marriage, Man and Woman, a Defense? We weren't hiding uh, what our position was on that question. We're not hiding what our evaluation of abortion is. Uh, it harms everything it touches. It solves nothing. The past 49 years has been an utter disaster. Uh, hopefully, Amazon will sell the book. It's currently listed on their website. Um, Amazon, Amazon sells lots of books, so we would like it to be uh, continue for sale there. Um, but the fact that it's the least, of the least controversial of the books that I've written uh, shows some of the ground that we've lost just within the past decade, um, you know, the time period that Denny was just talking about. You know, the first book was on marriage. The next book was on marriage and religious liberty. 
the next book, Religious Liberty and Discrimination, fourth book on transgender ideology. Um, none of our grandparents needed books on those questions. Right? These were self-evident truths. Right? None of our grandparents, and not only none of our grandparents, but you know, kind of uh, cross-culturally, human beings didn't need you know, academic, rigorous Ivy League arguments about the dignity of human life, the value of life in the womb, the nature of marriage as the union of a husband and wife, uh, the importance of our embodiment as male or female, uh, and um, uh, the free exercise of religion, the space for people to live out their deepest truths about religion. I mean, this is something that, uh, unfortunately, in the American tradition, we once took for granted and now we actually have to make arguments uh, and um, engage in a political process to see that our laws reflect the truth on those questions. Um, all four of those truths that were made in the image and likeness of God, that were created male and female, that male and female are created for each other in marriage, and that we are created for God, all four of those truths are right in the first uh, couple of pages of Genesis. Right? These are important enough that God reveals them right at the beginning of the Bible. They're also knowable by reason, right? which is why all of our grandparents, and not just our grandparents, but cross-culturally, people could know these things. Um, even if they don't use the language made in the image and likeness of God, they knew that the human creature was distinct from all other aspects of creation. Right? We're the only rational animal uh, that we know of. Right? They knew that marriage unites husband and wife. They knew that our embodiment made a difference. Uh, they knew that um, man's made for God. Uh, but we can't get to God on our own powers, right? That's why we need grace, but we're still oriented towards God. And these aren't partisan issues. Uh, historically, these weren't left, right, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal. This was part of a common consensus, a common moral consensus, a common uh, ontological, metaphysical, moral foundation. So then we could debate the stuff that we talked about yesterday. What's the best way of achieving the common good? But we weren't actually debating, you know, what are the constitutive aspects of it? All right, so this morning what I want to do is I want to take those four truths in turn, uh, walk through each of them, say a little bit about them. Um, and this isn't going to be so much like a, a natural law defense of those truths, because I think everyone in this auditorium um, is convicted of the truth of this. It'll be more about why do they matter? What do we do now? So this is going to be more kind of a, a policy perspective from someone who spent the past decade living in DC, working with members of Congress, um, what do we as a, uh, a conservative movement, as a Christian movement who wants uh, to bear witness to the truth and wants to love our neighbors, what do we need to do on these issues? Uh, so the first thing to say is that you know, 49 and a half years ago, the Supreme Court made a terrible mistake. And it wasn't just that they got a Supreme Court case wrong, although you know, that in and of itself would be a mistake, but in getting that case wrong, they committed a grave injustice. They denied the legal protection of the laws to an entire class of humanity, saying that the unborn child in the womb is entitled to no legal protections. The case I'm talking about, obviously, is Roe v. Wade. Um, my hope is that this past January, with my wife and kids and I bundled up in like, you know, sub-freezing temperature with wind chills, it was like below zero. My hope is that that's the last March for Life in January. My hope is not that it's the last March for Life, but the last one in January, and that the new March for Life gets moved to June, where we can celebrate a victory in the Dobbs case. Um, because this June, we're expecting the Supreme Court to issue its opinion uh, in Dobbs, um, and we should be praying that what they do is that they rule to completely overturn Roe, to completely overturn Casey, uh, and to say that the Constitution does not protect a right to lethal violence in the womb. Um, 
I doubt that right now this court's willing to go so far as to say that the 14th Amendment protects the unborn child, but at the very least they can say that the 14th Amendment does not protect the abortionist. That they'll return the question to the democratic process, and that's when our work really begins. Right? This isn't the end of the pro-life movement, it's the beginning of a new stage for the pro-life movement. Right? What the pro-life movement's gonna have to do now is pass laws in all 50 states and at the federal level and federal regulations, engage in a legislative process, a regulatory process, a litigation uh, process to ensure that every human life is protected in law and welcomed in life. Right? It needs to be a both and. So what does this look like? I, I wanna mention four um, false dichotomies uh, places where sometimes people will say it's one or the other and it needs to be both. Uh, and so, you know, it's a series of both ands. Um, uh, and you can think of this, you know, is it nature or grace? It's both nature and grace. Is it, you know, is Christ human or is he divine? It's, he's both human and divine. Similar answer here. I think heresy is frequently when you're isolating an aspect of the truth rather than the entirety. Um, you can have these false dichotomies. Should we love the mom or the baby? Both. The pro-life movement needs to be loving and serving both the mothers and the babies. Is it about material economic causes or is it about bad philosophical ideological causes? Both. We need to address both the philosophical and the material. Is it about the supply of abortion or the demand for abortion? Both. We need to address both the supply and the demand. Is it about law or is it about culture? Both. We need to address both the law and the culture. So let me walk through that. Um, abortion harms everything and everyone it touches. It obviously, that first victim is the child. It's also not good for the women. It's not good for the families that are destroyed through abortion. It's not good for male-female relations. It's not good for people with disabilities, people who are uh, members of racial minorities. It's not good for women. You look at um, the statistics on abortions, um, women are more likely to be aborted, people with disabilities more likely to be aborted, um, uh, racial minorities more likely to be aborted. Abortion doesn't solve anything, it only harms people. And so our response needs to be holistic, not just uh, focusing at the primary victim of abortion, that unborn child, but also looking at how it harms women. Uh, many women do not experience abortion as liberation. Uh, they experience it as a form of desperation. Uh, and so we should be um, uh, uh, holistic in our response, uh, meaning addressing both mothers facing unplanned pregnancies and their children. Second, this is gonna entail both addressing the material or economic uh, uh, aspects of abortion and the philosophical and ideological aspects of abortion. And what I mean by that, take the philosophical ideological aspects first. There's a lot of bad science and bad philosophy being um, uh, uh, put forward in defense of the abortion license. And I think it's all kind of just um, uh, uh, justification for a preconceived conclusion. Because when you look at how bad some of the science, it's a clump of cells, it's not really a human being, it's not a philosophical person, this is all being manufactured to justify the preordained conclusion, right? And what's at the heart there is a form of what um, Carl Truman, a wonderful uh, reformed theologian and historian at, um, he, he's a fellow with uh, me and Andrew at EPPC, but he's also a professor at Grove City College. He, he's written a great book on the rise of expressive individualism. And that's what at, is at the heart here of the philosophical uh, foundations for abortion. It's a failure to see that sometimes work and sacrifice and inconveniences and burdens are precisely what leads to some of life's greatest joys. Right? And so there's a bad ideology that undergirds the abortion license and then gives rise 
um, to some of the justifications that you'll see from you know, the bad science, the bad philosophy. But so too, there are real economic, material, and social pressures that contribute to this. As I mentioned, um, you know, some women might experience abortion as liberation, but many women experience it not as empowerment, but as defeat. Right? Pressure from a boyfriend, from a husband, from a father, from a mother, from an employer, uh, people who feel abandoned by their significant others, by boyfriends, by husbands, by family, um, people who feel constrained by their economic uh, condition uh, in, uh, in, into feeling that abortion is their only path forward. Right? And we need to be attentive to both. Uh, the ideologues uh, uh, pushing abortion, but also the realities on the ground. You, you talk to people who work at crisis pregnancy centers and they'll tell you, look, the women who are coming here looking for help, they aren't buying into uh, abortion as women's liberation. They're desperate and they think that this is just the best they can do out of a bad set of circumstances. Right? So we need to be attentive to both. And then the supply and the demand. We need to go after both. And God willing, if the Dobbs case finally gets rid of uh, Roe and Casey, not only will we be able to defund Planned Parenthood, but we will be able to pass laws saying it's illegal to kill unborn babies, right? Addressing the supply of abortion, right? It's the abortion mills, the abortionists who supply abortion will be able to uh, um, uh, uh, respond to that by shutting it down. So too, we can do what Texas did. So Texas passed the heartbeat bill. A very uh, a smart lawyer found a way of getting around Roe and Casey by having an enforcement mechanism that didn't involve the state and that has effectively stopped abortion in the state of Texas for the past six months. And we should cheer that outcome. Simultaneously, the Texas legislature uh, appropriated an additional, let me get the number right here, $100 million to the Texas Alternatives to Abortion Act. Right? Simultaneously, they're saying we're going to limit the supply of abortion. We're also going to try to address the demand for abortion, at least the financial side of the demand for abortion, by allocating concrete, tangible resources to then be utilized to assist women choose life to bring their children into the world. Uh, if and when abortion is finally criminalized, there are gonna be many women who will need physical, economic, material support to now bring those children to term, right? And we can be both and, the supply and demand. And then lastly, it needs to be law and culture. Um, we need to have the laws to protect the unborn child in the womb. We need to have laws like uh, the Texas Alternatives to Abortion Act, but we also need things like the crisis pregnancy centers, the pregnancy resource centers, things like Project Rachel, uh, a ministry to women uh, who are uh, experiencing um, depression or anxiety or other forms of uh, psychological and emotional uh, suffering after their abortions. Right? There's gonna be an increased role for the church uh, to minister to those who Pope Francis refers to as the walking wounded, uh, the women who have been harmed by Abortion, and so we're going to need cultural efforts um, to support those women, to support families, and we're going to need legal efforts. Okay, all of which to say is that this first creational truth uh, it, it flows from the fact that we're unique in all creation. We're made in the image and likeness of God. Um, the way in which we're most grossly violating that is with the you know somewhere between 600 to 900 thousand American lives that are killed every year in the womb and we need to respond to that. Uh, another way of saying this is that, you know, you can think of this, if you, if you like rights language, you can say that the child has a right to, the, uh, right to life. You can also think that we have duties to protect that child in the womb, to assist those mothers facing difficult pregnancies, right? So it's a two-way street. We have duties towards those babies and towards those mothers. That baby has a right to life. Second thing I wanna mention, we're created male and female. 
if I was here a decade ago, um, uh, everything I'm about to say probably wouldn't need to have been said because we hadn't really uh, fully appreciated what the T in LGBT stood for. The acronym had always included it. You know, letters keep being added, and so we should actually think about what the long-term uh, consequences of some of the additional letters uh, might be. But at the time, we had had a 20-year debate about the nature of marriage, about the definition of marriage, the purpose of marriage. The acronym was always T, and then it seemed like overnight, uh, as activists won on the legal redefinition of marriage, they pivoted to the T. And you know, now you know, President Biden can say that the transgender rights are the human rights issue of our generation. It would have been unthinkable that someone would say that a decade ago. Um, what's the truth of the matter here? What's at stake here? Um, boys and girls are different, right? but they're equal. Equality does not mean sameness. Men and women, male and female, boys and girls, are equal in their dignity, but they're not the same. Uh, what we've done within the past uh, however many generations of American life is that we've ping-ponged between kind of two extremes. Uh, one would be the rise of an, like an androgynous feminism that views equality as sameness and therefore wants to get rid of any differences that make a difference. And then the other is the overreaction of men are from Mars, women are from uh, Venus that, that resorts to kind of like radical stereotypes. And from those two uh, kind of extremes, we've now gotten to the point where, well, the body doesn't actually matter and that gender is a spectrum. And your gender identity, your inner sense of gender determines your sex, and that modern medicine, modern science can reassign your physical body to line up with your internal gender identity. Right? And so there's gonna be work here to recover a sound understanding of the sexual differences that make a difference. You know, why did God create us male and female? What are the differences? that make a difference? How can we uphold the equality of the sexes without either distorting those differences or denying them with an androgynous form of feminism? What we're now seeing particularly as something new under the sun is a rise of young women and girls who reject their feminine identity. Uh, there's a 4,400% increase in the number of girls and young women in the United Kingdom who are identifying as trans or non-binary. Right? So the T isn't even inclusive enough, because what we're now seeing is that they're non-binary identities, people who are simply opting out of the male-female uh, sexual dimorphic nature of our reality. And they are not experiencing this as liberation, right? Again, they're frequently experiencing this as their best way of coping with a toxic culture. They don't neatly fit into certain stereotypes, or they don't like the sexual expectations that are being placed upon them in a very sex-saturated uh, culture. Um, you know, read some of the work from someone like Abigail Schreier, who, who I think has done the best, most accessible um, uh, 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 journalism and reporting on what's going on, particularly with teenage and college-age uh, girls and women. And this is tragic. And they aren't experiencing it as you know, human rights, human liberty, liberation. They're trying to protect themselves uh, frequently from ways in which they've been harmed by the culture. What this has now created is all sorts of actual human rights violations. Um, uh, we've seen this happen with, um, uh, I live in Loudoun County, Virginia, uh, two school-age girls uh, who were sexually assaulted by a boy identifying as a girl in their school bathrooms. Right? We're seeing this right now play out with NCAA athletics with a college boy who identifies as a girl, college man who identifies as a woman, competing and winning the championship 
uh, swim competitions. Right? And so there's a violation of privacy going on in those locker rooms and those bathrooms, a violation of safety, bodily integrity for those girls who have been sexually uh, assaulted, a violation of basic equality and fairness when it comes to competitions in sports. Um, all of those things matter, um, and I don't want to downplay the importance of those things, but there's an even deeper harm, and that's to the people suffering from gender dysphoria themselves. People whose bodies are being mutilated, they're having their puberty blocked um, by uh, adults prescribing the off-label use of puberty-blocking drugs to prevent a child from ever, ever physically maturing at, into the man or the woman that God created them to be. They're having their uh, fertility permanently uh, um, obliterated. They're being sterilized through the use of cross-sex hormones and surgeries to remove reproductive organs, external, external genitalia, secondary sex characteristics. Um, again, in, in, in the title of Abigail Schreier's uh, excellent book, irreversible damage is being uh, perpetrated against minors. Right? This is an abuse of medicine and of science. Um, uh, uh, Texas is entirely right to be opening investigations of the hospitals and the clinics that are committing this abuse against children. It's a violation of sound medical ethics. And it's something that we need to be responding to. Uh, and it's just, you know, again, like, um, it wasn't on our radar screen a decade ago. It started more than a de decade ago. The first pediatric gender clinic opened its doors in the United States in 2007 at Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, but a lot of this was taking place under the radar. Now that we know it, now that we've seen it, we can't look away. We can't deny it's taking place. We have to bear witness to the truth of, of the bodily goodness of these children, um, that there are two ways, two equal ways of being human of being images of God, a male and a female way, uh, and that if you have a emotional, um, psychological uh, sense of discomfort with your body, the answer is not transforming the body. That there's nothing wrong with the body. The, the solution is gonna be helping a young person with the time and the space to continue growing and maturing to feel comfortable in their bodies. The, the analogy that Dr. Paul McHugh uh, the former psychiatrist-in-chief at Johns Hopkins Hospital, the former chair of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Medical School, the psychiatrist who back in the 1970s shut down the Hopkins Sex Reassignment Clinic, which at the time was only doing this to adults. Um, it subsequently was reopened about three or four years ago now. Uh, but the analogy that McHugh uses is to anorexia. And he says, if you had a high school girl struggling with anorexia, no physician would prescribe liposuction because there's nothing wrong with her body. You had a high school girl struggling with anorexia, you would try to figure out why does she think she's overweight? Why does she think she's unattractive? Is it a struggle with body image per se? Is it a struggle with eating? Right, so an eating disorder and a body image problem sometimes overlap, sometimes they're actually quite different in the etiology and therefore you're gonna have different therapeutic responses. What a good therapist does is talk to the young person to figure out what's going on in their life, what the underlying causes are, and then address the therapeutic interventions at those underlying causes. The solution's not going to be blocking puberty. It's not going to be cross-sex hormones. It's not going to be surgery. And, and in fact, many doctors worry that by blocking puberty, what we're doing is we're blocking the natural developmental process that 80 to 95% of the time reconciles these problems. Um, that when the, for example, grade school boy who feels uncomfortable as a boy, maybe he's a little bit smaller, he's not athletic, he's not particularly rambunctious, and so you know, he's questioning whether or not he's an authentic boy because he has a very you know, rigid understanding, stereotypical understanding of what the all-American boy is supposed to be. He doesn't fit into that. 
he's questioning his own gender identity, when he goes through puberty, when he hits his growth spurt, when he has the rush of testosterone, et cetera, et cetera, when he develops into a man, that could be the very developmental process that helps him re-identify with his bodily reality. And by blocking puberty, we're actually creating a one-way ratchet uh, for these children. Many of the doctors who I've spoken to are very concerned that this is a self-fulfilling treatment uh, protocol. Um, they've also noted that there's a very high uh, correlation between uh, children on the autism spectrum and gender dysphoria. Right? And if you know something about autism, people can be very rigid in their understanding of various concepts. And so if you do have a particularly rigid understanding of what it is to be a boy or a girl and you don't fit into that, you could come to the self-understanding that you're not, quote, a real boy or girl. Right? So we're, frequently there are comorbidities taking place and rather than addressing those underlying causes, we're treating this with pharmaceuticals and with surgery. Um, it's a huge, I could talk for hours about this. I wrote a book about it because it's such a huge problem. Uh, and many of our elites are just turning a blind eye to it because what they've told themselves, I was an ally on marriage equality, therefore I'm an ally on trans equality. I was in favor of, um, uh, of gay rights, now I'm in favor of trans rights. And they haven't even thought about these issues, right? It's an utter abdication of their responsibilities as leaders to think about what's going on and what's actually in the authentic best interest of these people. Okay, which is another way, again, you can say this is that like, you know, children have a right to a healthy childhood. Children have a right, if you, again, if you want to put it in rights talk, that they have a right to this time, this space to simply develop free from adults interfering with their physical and mental and emotional development. Third creational truth, men and women are created for each other. We're not just, you know, it's not just like two random sexes that God happened to have created. He creates it precisely with the design for us to unite as one flesh. Right? And again, these are truths of the creation or we can know them by reason. This is why non-Christians have been practicing marriage. Right? They've been getting married. They've been having babies. They've been raising children with mothers and fathers. It's not something that's just a sacrament or an ordinance or a covenant of the church, but it also is that, right? It's, it does both and duty. It's a natural institution and it's a supernatural institution. Um, it's based upon our physical embodiment as male or female. Uh, marriage unites a man and a woman as husband and wife to then be mother and father to their children. It's based on that biological, uh, actually, it's based on an anthropological truth that men and women are distinct and complementary the biological fact that reproduction requires a mother and a father, and then a social reality that children deserve both a mother and a father. Um, the past seven years since the Obergefell ruling hasn't changed any of those realities. A court case doesn't change reality. It doesn't change truth. All it means is that our laws no longer reflect the truth. Right? And so it wasn't just that the court got a case wrong. This is just like Roe v. Wade. It got the nature of reality wrong. By getting the case wrong, it now has our laws out of accord with the natural law and the eternal law, right? flowing right from what I had mentioned with um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail. Next thing to say about this is that gays and lesbians are not to blame for this. Right? This starts the redefinition, the cultural redefinition of marriage, and then uh, prior legal redefinitions of marriage start amongst straight people. And I don't like using even like gays and lesbians and straight people because I think they're just people. And we have various sexual desires and our desires don't actually determine our identity. And so I think it's a, it's a I have to use language that the culture uses so you know what I'm talking about, but I wanna caution against kind of ontologizing um, our desires as part of our identities, right? By nature, we're all ordered towards someone of the opposite sex. 
but we might have desires and passions that conflict with our natures. Right? And so you might have fallen desires, misplaced passions, et cetera, et cetera. That said, it was people with uh, 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 heterosexual desires, passions, who created this mess. It starts with the 1960s. It starts with the sexual revolution. It's the hookup culture. It's the rise and normalization of premarital sex. It's non-marital childbearing, the normalization of cohabitation, the introduction of no-fault divorce laws, the more than doubling in the rates of divorce, the rise of single parentinghood that came from that. Gays and lesbians did not create those realities. We did, our parents did, our grandparents did. And so it's after two generations of the broader community not taking monogamy or exclusivity or permanence seriously that the court then says, well, why should we take sexual complementarity seriously? Right? There was a cultural redefinition of marriage and of human sexuality, and the court just took a bad train of logic and it took it to the next step. But the reality is that all of those prior destinations of the sexual revolution have been going in a bad direction. They've been bad for human flourishing, bad uh, for human dignity. Uh, this is a social justice issue. If you wanna know, you know uh, just based upon you know, someone is born, you wanna predict what's the most likely outcome if the child's gonna flourish or fail to flourish. Are they likely to graduate high school, likely to be employed, likely to marry themselves, likely to end up in jail, likely to um, uh, have a good job? One of the prime determinants is whether they're born into and raised by their married mothers and fathers. Right? That's not to say that if you're born outside of an intact family that you're somehow destined for failure. It is to say that you have a more challenging road in front of you. Right? And, I, and I don't think it does any service to anyone to deny those realities. Um, and certainly it's not the single mothers who are to blame. Right? They're frequently heroic in taking responsibility for children when the fathers have abandoned them. People, people to blame here are the deadbeat dads who don't man up and take responsibility for uh, their sexual partners who you know, ideally should be their wives, right? they should be married, or for the children uh, that they helped to create. Right? Redefining marriage does nothing to solve these problems, it exacerbates uh, the problems. It'll put a new principle, it has put a new principle into our law that marriage is simply about consenting adult romance of whatever size or shape the consenting adults come in. Uh, and so we're, gonna, we're already seeing pushes uh, for the legal recognition of three-person unions. Just last week, the Harvard Law Review published a, uh, 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 an article on three different jurisdictions in Massachusetts that recognize multi-partner relationships. Right? And the argument here is that if marriage equality requires recognition of same-sex couples, why not same-sex throuples or opposite-sex quartets? What's the legal principle that uh, reserves monogamy once you get rid of male and female. Because right? there's nothing magical about the number two. The way that we got to the number two was that it was one man and one woman who can unite as one flesh in the act that can create new life and then attach that new life with its mother and its father. Right? Once you get rid of that, it certainly seems arbitrary to say people who have a preference for one partner should be treated better in law than people who have a preference for two partners or three partners. Right? Why not just treat all consenting adult relationships the same? Why should they be permanent? Right? We don't expect, we have all sorts of other contracts in life that aren't per permanent. You can lease a car, you can lease a house, why not lease your spouse? Right? And that's the concept of a wed lease in contrast to wedlock. Right? If marriage isn't about generativity, about creating the next generation, creating the family tree, why should it necessarily inherently be permanent? Why should it be sexually exclusive? 
right? This is the, the idea of the monogamish relationship. All of these further redefinitions are already occurring in the culture. Uh, and again, it's not as if gays and lesbians uh, are entirely to blame for this. Many heterosexuals have been living this way, uh, even if they haven't had uh, words to label it. And then lastly, I'll say about this, marriage is also a pro-life issue. So it's not just a social justice issue in terms of how children will uh, flourish or fail to flourish later in life. It's also a pro-life issue because the most protective space for a child to be conceived is inside of marriage. I forgot actually to write down in my outline the statistic, but if I'm remembering correctly, it's something, that, it's something like only 4% of abortions occur from married women. Right? So one of the best protector of the unborn child is to be conceived inside of a stable, permanent, intentional relationship known as marriage. It's that when children are conceived outside of marriage that they have a greater likelihood of being aborted. And so we aren't gonna build a culture of life unless we also build a culture of marriage. Uh, and not just a culture of marriage, but a culture of chastity, a culture in which sexual relations are properly reserved and honored inside of marriage. Right? And so there's a lot of cultural work and legal work to be done here. All right, last uh, truth that I wanna mention so then we have time uh, for your questions and answers. Um, we're not just um, you know, created in the image and likeness of God, male and female, male and female for each other, but we're also made for God. Right? Part of being made in the image and likeness of God is that we're, uh, uh, we're, we're created for friendship with God, for union with God. Um, which is simply to say that religion should have a role in our public life. We shouldn't have, you know, everything that I talked about last night with the rise of the naked public square and understanding of the institutional separation of church and state as a institutional separation of religion from public life, a privatization of religion, what um, Richard John Newhouse referred to as the naked public square. That's not what a sound philosophical approach to politics or a theological approach. It's not what the founders of this country uh, intended or what they designed. Uh, and it really now should raise the question of can you even have human dignity and human rights without the author of the natural law, without the natural lawgiver, right? What are you founding uh, claims about human dignity and human rights on uh, if it's just a social construct, it's just a social contract, it's a result of cultural relativism or moral relativism or moral skepticism? This is, um, again, to mention the earlier lecture, natural rights without foundations. Right? If we're cutting ourselves off from the deeper metaphysical, uh, moral, and theological roots uh, of, our, um, of our nature and therefore of our fulfillment. So that's one part, uh, and I won't say more about that right now because you know, we had talked about it last night. But now there's another aspect of this as well. It's not only have we first secularized um, our public square and secularized the nation, but now we're using the law uh, to punish people who haven't gone along with secularization. Right? I mean, this is where you see, um, hopefully everyone's okay. Um, <laughs> this is where you see um, uh, uh, someone like Tim Gill uh, say that he wants to pass laws to quote, punish the wicked. And what he meant by that was he, he, this was an interview that he did with Rolling Stone magazine to say that we're going into some of the deepest southern Christian states to pass laws that would punish Orthodox Christian believers who want to live out their faith when it comes to human sexuality, uh, which is another way of saying you guys are the wicked uh, that he wants to punish. Uh, we're seeing this uh, in terms of schools, in terms of charities, adoption agencies, some of which have caved on the issues. 
unfortunately, you know, some Christian adoption agencies are now doing same-sex adoptions rather than insisting that every child deserves both a mother and a father. They've succumbed to political and legal pressure. Uh, we're seeing it with the bakers, the florists, the photographers, uh, who have no problem at all serving gay customers, right? And every example uh, that's been litigated, they, they, sometimes they had long-lasting relationships uh, with the gay customers who subsequently sued them. Um, so to take one example, Baronelle Stutzman, for a decade, she was the florist for a particular gay couple. She would do happy birthday flowers, get well soon flowers. It was only after the government redefined marriage and they asked her, can you do our wedding flowers, that she sat down and you know, very charitably said, you, you know I love you guys, but I can't do wedding flowers to help celebrate something that I don't believe is a marriage. God doesn't want me using my God-given gifts and talents to communicate a message and to celebrate an event that doesn't accord with God's design for marriage. She spent um, almost a decade in litigation uh, and ultimately had to uh, retire from her business. Uh, she lost that case. Um, Jack Phillips, uh, slightly different case, he won uh, his first case at the Supreme Court. Uh, he's now in his third case. Uh, his first case involved a same-sex wedding cake. He's currently um, being harassed by the Colorado Commission on Civil Rights because an activist came asking for a cake to celebrate uh, his gender transition. Uh, and he wanted a cake. I, I believe it was um, blue batter with pink frosting. Uh, I might have it reversed, but the idea was to symbolize, you know, male on the inside, female on the outside, or vice versa. And Jack said, "That's not a cake that I can create. That's not a message that I can send. It's not an event that I can celebrate." And Jack has run his business consistently with these beliefs throughout his company. If you're not familiar, it's called Masterpiece Cake Shop. It's partly named because he's creating masterpieces of art, but rather than on canvas, on flour and icing, and partly because he takes seriously um, Jesus's admonition that you can't serve two masters, God and mammon. And so he wanted everything that he did in his business to serve his master. And so he won't uh, do cakes with any pornography or lewd images. He won't do any cakes with alcohol, right? So he's not my type of Christian. I think he's probably more comfortable uh, your type of Christian. Um, he won't do any anti-American cakes because he doesn't think uh, that we should be you know, der derogatory towards our own, our own nation. Uh, he won't do any cakes that were anti-gay. Right? One time someone asked him to do a, a cake that said, uh, it more or less was a paraphrase of Leviticus and he's like, I don't think that's the best way of expressing that, uh, uh, that belief so I'm not gonna bake that cake. One time he was asked to do a happy divorce cake. Someone wanted a wedding cake that was only gonna be half of a wedding cake to communicate the celebration. And he's like, nope, that's not a message I can send, not an event that I can celebrate. He was never sued for any of those custom ordered cakes that he had declined to fulfill. It's only been the same-sex wedding cake and now the happy transition cake, right? And so th there are consequences when the law changes, when the culture changes on these beliefs to now the freedom of religion, of religious individuals to live it out, not just religious institutions. This is also important to know that it's not just about protecting the seminary or protecting the Catholic hospital, or protecting the Christian adoption agency. The reason I highlight the baker and the florist, and I could give you other examples, marriage counselors, therapists, uh, right now medical professionals who wanna help young people identify with their bodies can lose their license in 20 states. Right? These are serious uh, legal problems for people who simply wanna live out the truth in their daily vocations. And it's important that we not conflate the free exercise of religion with the freedom of worship something that repeatedly happened 
during the Obama administration, both from Secretary of State Kerry and Secretary of State Clinton. Reducing the free exercise of religion, which is what the founders protected with freedom of worship. Right? So little sisters of the poor, what you do in your chapel when you're going to mass, when you're praying to rosary, something like that, up, you're free to worship. But what you do when you take care of the elderly and you provide them an authentic death with dignity by accompanying them during their last days, you have to comply with a government mandate. Your health care plan has to cover abortion-causing drug, drugs and other contraceptives, even though it's in violation of your beliefs about what the nature of health and therefore health care is. Right? I mean, that's what we're uh, up against in terms of some of the religious liberty violations, whether or not we in our daily vocations will be able to serve the master, whether it's in health care, in education, in um, uh, therapy, in uh, artistic crafts, services, et cetera, et cetera. When you graduate from Boyce College, when you graduate from the seminary, will you be able to have your day job in keeping with what you've been taught here to believe is true? Okay, uh, let me wrap up by saying there's no neutrality on these issues. Right? You personally can't be neutral on these issues, and the law can't be neutral on these issues. Right? What's the neutral position on abortion? Right? Either we're going to protect the unborn child in the womb, or we're going to allow abortionists to kill unborn children. There's no neutrality there. There's no neutrality on ma marriage. Either the law is going to recognize that marriage is the union of husband and wife, or it's going to recognize marriage is the union of any consenting two adults or any consenting ensemble of adults, right? There's no neutrality there. There's no neutrality on our sexual embodiment, right? Either the law is gonna recognize that uh, sex is based on a physical reality, or it's gonna say it's based upon a gender identity. So either our bathrooms, our locker rooms, and our sports are gonna be conducted based on objective biology, male and female, or subjective identity. So that if you identify as a woman, you can go to the women's locker room, you can compete on the women's sport team. There's no neutrality between those two positions. And then likely there's no neutrality on our uh, religious nature, right? Either the state's going to foster our religious life, promote uh, our religious life by respecting the free exercise of religion, right? I mean, that's how in our pluralistic, religiously diverse society, how do we best promote the good of religion? It's by giving us space to live out our beliefs about religion, right? You and I have, we have, we have important differences about theology and about religious conviction, right? When I've talked about, you know, the ecumenism of the trenches and, um, uh, and the re-education camps, uh, that's to recognize that we have certain common creational beliefs, certain common cultural political beliefs, but we do also, also have significant theological differences that we shouldn't downplay. And the fact that we can live peaceably with each other is precisely one of the achievements of our protecting the free exercise of religion, right? That you can have the First Baptist Church and you know, the, the Holy Spirit perish um, down the road from here and that we can coexist even while, like, it, it's good that we no longer have the wars of religion. That's a cultural uh, achievement which we should celebrate. Um, we should structure all of our laws, all of our public policies to support, advance, and promote these truths. Right? The truth that we're, every human being has innate and profound intrinsic worth and dignity because the deepest theological justification, we're made in the image and likeness of God. The truth that we're created male and female, and that's to be celebrated and affirmed not denied or distorted. The truth that men and women are created for each other in marriage, the truth that all of us are created uh, for God. Like, that's what our laws and our policies, including our economic policies and our foreign policies, right? Social conservatism is, is, is the ultimate goal of why we wanna have functioning markets and national defense. We don't want functioning social, you know, conservative values for the sake of growing the economy or 
uh, winning foreign wars, right? The reason we wanna have a strong national defense and a good economy is precisely so we can flourish in our families, in our friendships, in our churches, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So it's important to see what's the end and what's the means uh, to the end here. And so that's gonna be an important part to my mind of, 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 of a realignment of priorities on the right. Very last thing I'll say is I wanna encourage all of you um, as you discern your vocations, uh, to think about where God is calling you to make a difference on these issues. Right? For those of you who are studying uh, to be pastors, I hope you preach on these issues. I hope you don't engage in self-censorship. I hope you don't uh, fear, uh, if I'm too outspoken, you know, what will the backlash be? Um, your vocation is to bear witness to the truth. Do it in a charitable way, do it in a persuasive way. You know, do your homework so that when you're giving a sermon on these issues, um, it's responding to the concerns of, of your congregation, but do not go silent, right? The, the church can't go silent to these things. If you're studying in the PhD program, I hope you develop robust Baptist theological and philosophical um, arguments to defend these truths, right? We need more scholars, better books than the ones I've written on these issues, right? I, I hope Andrew, his, his forthcoming book on kind of a, 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 a Protestant account of natural law theory, I hope that becomes a bestseller, right? I, I hope that influences how the church thinks about the nature of moral truth. You know, undergraduates, like you have all sorts of ways in which you could be engaging this. Maybe some of you are gonna go to law school and you're gonna litigate these cases. Maybe some of you are gonna be the baker and the florist who runs your business in accordance with your beliefs. Some of you might go to medical school and you'll be the therapist helping someone uh, identify with their body rather than transitioning. And then the last thing I'll say is that all of us have vocation to live this stuff out, right? The most persuasive defense of these truths is not gonna be the arguments that I make or that Andrew makes. It's gonna be our embodied witness through our families, through our friendships, through our professional vocations, and through our uh, church membership, right? That's where we actually uh, live this out. Uh, Pope Benedict, you know, world-class intellectual, uh, the, the quote of his that I always kind of uh, resonate most with, he says, it's not the arguments of the philosophers and the theologians that win converts. It's the beauty of the artists and the holiness of the saints. And by saints there, he means all of us. He doesn't just mean like kind of Catholic canonized saints. He, he means Christian believers. Right? The beauty and the holiness of you living this stuff out is gonna be what's the most persuasive, most attractive way that we win converts. And so you know, my final encouragement is like, do that. Um, uh, understand what the truth of the matter is and then um, uh, be empowered with the grace, with the Holy Spirit to live this out in your daily life.